Okay, so today I'm really happy to welcome on the show Dr. Matt Frew. Quite a long title, Introduction Senior Lecturer in Enterprise and Tech Transformation at the School of Business and Creative Industries, University of West Scotland. Welcome, Matt. Hi, guys. Good to be here, actually. Yeah, looking forward to this. <laughs> we were talking offline. Actually, there's, there's a kind of range of things we can talk about. Hopefully, we have time to kind of cover it all off. I was connected with Matt on LinkedIn. I made a post about a book I was kind of re revisiting, which was uh, Samulkra and Simulation that I'd read some time ago uh, and then forgotten about. Um, actually, the book was written in 1981, the year I was born. As I was reading it, it felt very relevant for the world that we live in, which is quite amazing, really, given it's you know 40 years on and was a really helpful framework for me to contextualize some of the things that are going on in my world in the metaverse. And it really talks about something called hyperreality. It's by Jean Baudrillard. And effectively, the post was referencing the fact that technology and in particular media begin to change how we experience and perceive reality. And a founder within our portfolio, Esther of Hundo, very kindly invited Matt into the thread. And when I uh, saw his brilliant answer and background, I was almost embarrassed about my initial comment. So I thought I'd get him on the podcast to talk about a couple of things. So the first one is this, you know, the impact of media and technology on reality and how we experience it. He's been doing lots of really interesting work in what he terms as dark, D-A-R-Q, distributed ledger technology, I think augmented reality, uh, AI. That's AI, yeah. Artificial intelligence, yeah. And then the reality is the virtual augmented mix through to extended reality. And then quantum computing is the queue. We now call it dark, dark plus because because they keep getting bigger. Yeah, but I actually thought it was great. I hadn't heard that before, but I think it's a good framing because all of those things are naturally you know, things we're looking at investing in in the context of the metaverse. But it was interesting that you have distributed ledger technologies in there. So presumably you think that they are fundamental or foundational to what the metaverse will be. Of course, there are many different interpretations of the metaverse. And I know you call everything that's going on at at Meta kind of imitations of the metaverse, but we're going to get into that a little bit more. But maybe just quickly so people can understand who you are as a guest. Would I call you a futurist? Uh, Yeah, some guys would call me a futurist. I'm really a future studies academic with a particular preference for post-structuralist social theory, actually. I mean, we do loads of social theory, but I love the post-structuralist. Hence your Baudrillard piece and on the concept of hyper-reality, which you're absolutely right. It fits fantastically well for our current age, where we've just been, you know, hence obviously in the 80s when Baudrillard published the book, to where we are now, how we've accelerated here, which is one of the guiding principles of future studies is the first one really is uh, speed, you know, or how we've accelerated and we've accelerated at a phenomenal rate to the point where we live in this age of acceleration that's constructing along with it, an anxiety of acceleration, really. But it's a, it's an image-based society, if you like, that we now live in. That anxiety, we, I mean, we were talking offline, <laughs> we both personally feel it, trying to kind of keep up with everything. But I know it's interesting you said, I mean, you've been, you've been doing this for 20 years now. You said the role of a futurist isn't to predict the future. You had kind of a, a different remit in, in your mind. Maybe you could just expand on that a little bit. Yeah, from a futurist point of view, I mean, everybody talks about this idea of prediction. You know, nobody can predict, you know, we can't predict anything. If we could predict it, you know, you know, we would be away making loads and loads of money. So I always say this, we don't have a crystal ball. We don't consult the chicken bones or the tea leaves. It's usually based on, on data. And one of my actually favorite futurists is Amy Webb, you know, um, at the Future Institute. You know, she 
uh, has fantastic methodologies, and it's really predominantly based on evidence and data, trends, global phenomenon, what we call weak and strong signals, how they move from the margins into the mainstream. So that's what you're doing, and they use a thing called a time cone as a kind of classic example, which is... As you move through time, obviously the data gets less blurry, you know, less weak and the signal's weaker. So therefore, the idea of looking at foresights is what we're trying to do. You're, you're trying to look at, so how's this going to actually evolve over time? So that's really what it is. So yeah, we talk about possible, probable, preferable, right through to what's called preposterous futures. And that's kind of, that's how we do it. So we don't predict anything. So please, we don't predict anything. I think, again, offline, you were saying that the preposterous, what previously might have felt preposterous to, to lots of people, commentators, is no longer the case, right? It, it's probable, if not already happening. Absolutely. It's like views to the mountaintop, as I say. When you talk to the public, you know, Joe Public, you know, they are walking about out there, almost sleepwalking, I would suggest, a lot of time. But when you're at the top of the mountaintop, uh, you're seeing further things that might seem preposterous to the guy at the bottom, to the guy at the top, are just a given. They, look, this is already here. So a lot of things that we don't know, I mean, it's a great quote by Carl Barth. He really referred to it with theologians, but he used to say it is like when most people have dragged themselves kicking and screaming and bloodied to the top of the precipice, they'll find a band of theologians. I would replace that and say they'll find a band of futurists who've been there for centuries. <laughs> it's that kind of thing. And it's really interesting, to be fair, it's a fan. This is an amazing time that we're in right now. It's absolutely fantastic and terrifying at the same time. Yeah, no, absolutely. So let's get into, firstly, your definition of the metaverse. And I know there are kind of some characteristics which are about, I guess, levels of immersion and embodied state and emotion. But maybe you could kind of give your, your definition of the metaverse and why you think what we're, we're currently seeing are imitations of the metaverse. Right now, what we're seeing, we're at the kind of, not the start, but I mean, it's been going on for a wee while. Right now, these are just like glimpses, are little examples of where we're kind of going. And the metaverse, is a, as, a, as Matt Ball talks about, is a vision and an aspiration, and I agree with him there. For me, the metaverse is not something that we go into. Okay, we're not going to go into the metaverse. You, you can, because everybody equates it with virtuality, which is part of the problem. They equate it with a particular technology. Actually, it's the integration of multiple technologies. So for me, the metaverse is what I would call a rhizomatic multiple space. Rhizomatic means it doesn't have a center. It's a problem because people say, define the metaverse for me. And technically, you can't really define it, right? But for me, it's not something you go into. It's something that you'll embody. It's something that will be woven into the fabric of your very life, it will saturate us to the point that it will become an ultimate given and you will call on it as and when you wish. You know, and it'll be used constantly. It kind of fits well for me in kind of a lot of the transhumans discussions about how we are constantly embodying technologies, how technologies which used to be out there, you know, we'd you know, they've moved in. And I, I usually use communicative technologies is the best way of thinking about it, Jamie. If you think of the phones, I always use the phones and how we communicate. It used to be with the print and the press. Then it moved to the wire, electrified. Then, of course, we started with like, so the, 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 the silent movies. Then we had radio. And as you go all the way up, you then get people having phones and then they have them in their house. And then they now have them in their pockets. It's moving from way out there. It's coming, 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 co
to our very biological being. And the metaverse will allow us, in a sense, that opportunity to move beyond biology, because that is the big barrier to be overcome, as Kurzweil says, you know, Ray Kurzweil's a famous futurist, and that's the kind of thing. So I think what lies ahead with the metaverse, it's not necessarily something to go into, because I keep hearing people saying the metaverse is dead. I'm like, what planet are you on? Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, and it's interesting because we used the open metaverse as a framing a thesis that we invest into that we think defines the next decade for us. We kind of published this pre uh, the NFT explosion, pre meta, and it felt very, you know, very timely. And then, of course, now everyone's saying it's dead. But for us, it's still how we see the future. It's hence why the podcast is still called the Metaverse Podcast and Show. So why is the convergence of dark technologies important for you or foundational to that metaverse that you're talking about, that dest- that direction? Yeah, I think the thing is, is for me, dark is really good because of dark pluses, I would say. It's really the integration, and that's the word I always try to say to colleagues and people with physicists. It's not the one technology, guys. Where we are now, because there's this issue, obviously, with techie guys, about interoperability, the ability, you know, between technologies. Well, with dark technologies, we're seeing the convergence or the integration when you integrate these technologies. So it's not just AI, it's not just AR or VR through to XR, it's not just BCI, all of these things. When you start to bring these things together, you fundamentally transform what it is and what it means to be human, which is a classic transhuman statement, really. We are evolving as a species into something else. We're, and now we're just accelerating at a, just like, again, classic future studies principle one speed. It's accelerating at a rate that we have never seen this before. So I think we're going to see in the next, within the next 10 years, if we don't end up in a world of war, which is pretty possible. We're going to go with Stellar, which is a, a good guy to remember, a great guy to think of. is a guy called Michel Kakao. He's one of the you know quantum mechanics physicists, uh, string theory guy, futurist as well. He talks about we're at that position where we could go Stellar as a human race, or he says we could be dragged back literally into the dark ages with... You know, people believing in what I call meta-narratives, you know, religious fundamentalism is a classic example. Interestingly, in, in kind of parallel to, you know, the day job, I've been going down the quantum rabbit hole and, you know, what that brings to perceptions of reality and subjectivity. And actually what kind of took me into that was thinking around simulation theory. Maybe maybe if we get time, we can talk about that a little bit later, whether you think we're in a simulation or not. But I think what's interesting is these technologies when combined, accelerate one another. Compound might not be the right word, but it, it just the, the rate of impact, economic, social, is, is just significantly increased rather than being kind of standalone. As a subset of that, why for you are distributed ledger technologies foundational to that? The distributed ledger technologies is more for me about the, the interest you're talking about authenticity, the ability for a system that basically can be more secure, if you like, and can be verified, you know. So the distributed ledger technology and what it can offer is, allows is maybe more of that. So for me, that's more when we take the distributed ledger technology and then when we combine it maybe with AI as well, that allows us to give us, believe it or not, the ability to, you know, verify certain things, if you like, if you want to be into more security, which is one of the criticisms that you get. I mean, I did a thing recently, well, a few years ago about deep fake. And it's about stalking. 
and I remember going to a conference. It was the actually again stalking guys asked me to go, and I'd looked at this and I said, so I stood up and the and you had the police there and all the policy makers and the government and all these guys, and they're all worried about obviously kids online bullying, cyber bullying, stalking online because this is it. And of course, this is yeah, yeah, you're a stalker guy. It's too much like hard work to stalk you, you know. So they do it online. I says, but if you guys think this is bad, where do you see this thing, right? And I was of course showing them where. Uh, VR was coming, it was coming down the pipe and the metaverse, the early intimations of the metaverse were coming. They were like, oh my God, and and how could, and of course they always shout it's fake, is what they always say, and I says, well actually it's not fake, it's actually it's actually pretty real, to be honest. I says, this is here, it's now. And then straight away, typical police guys, they want to import in government, they want to regulate it, don't they? You know, the, the, the gaze of governance appears straight away, the, you know, it's, let's shut it down, let's police it. And I said, well, you know, the interesting thing is when you go to a court of law and somebody says that man did this or that woman did that, we have this big, huge argument with legally and it's all a case of trying to prove it somehow. This religious technology and with AI, that would give us a far more better way of proving it. You understand me? Because well, we can literally, in this space, we can see exactly where you are, what you did, who you did, when you said it, blah, blah, blah. And it's all encrypted to the point that it can't necessarily be hacked. I know that we always get the hackers who say they can but um, that, that's where I see it. Blockchains are really bad places to commit crimes. You know, you're much better dealing with cash or, or something else, right? An auditable record of time is, uh, uh, is it's not a good place to be naughty. Now, and again, like for us, the reason why Web3 is foundational to our vision of the metaverse is it creates the economic system for work or culture to be to be created in a, in a distributed sense, even in a long tail sense. So maybe then let's get get into this uh, the kind of hyper reality. You know, you talk about the metaverse having this embodied state going inwards, um, affecting emotion and senses. What do you think about this kind of post structuralist framework and and things like work around hyper reality? How are you seeing that play out? Now, why do you think that's a useful tool? And are there other other reference points that you could make beyond Baudrillard? I think the thing is, is, is with hyper hyper reality refers to what we call third order image. In other words, we ha- we live in an image based society. Especially, it's a commentary on consumer capitalism, which really accelerates for the fifties onwards. It's faster and faster and faster and faster. I mean, we have this consumerist based society, but it's a society that's really driven by image, increasingly image, which you can see early doors. And if you just think of the consumer, the adverts, the, the merchandising, the magazines, all this stuff, then your TV and your radio, these are what they call similar. These are the signs and symbols society that we live in. We get it through the predominantly through the eyes and then the ears. And this speeds up and speeds up until we get this age of, of acceleration where we're within social media and now into the intimations of the metaverse, etc. So you're literally bombarded with this. So your first image is usually basically just what you'd call would be a sign that relates to reality, you know, a sign that relates to the world, you know, whether it be, you know, trees or cars or whatever, it's a sign that, says that relates to a so-called real thing in the real world, first order. Second order is when, as I was saying before to you, is it's when you're getting a sign of, a, you know, a sign like a photo of a photo, or I think an example I used for you is like a, take the, never mind the Bollocks uh, Sex Pistols album cover, and then it turns up on a t-shirt, that kind of, or the Mona Lisa, which is a print, or on, you've got the picture in the Louvre, which is now again on your wall, that kind of stuff. And then what Baudrillard says, your third order image, which is your real hyper real now, is it's really about a series of simulations where we're con- 
society is moving so fast, we're so bombarded with image, we're so saturated by image-based society, that it's a simulation of a simulation that you're getting to the point that the so-called real or authentic world disappears to the point it's blurred a mush of simulation, if you want to call it that. That's what they call it. And that's really this infinite blurring that you're finding. The consumer society is the best way of doing it because, I mean, it's the old story I'm looking at Jamie. I always say, here's Jamie here. Who is Jamie? And I says, well, Jamie's this, and I always do this. I says, Jamie is literally three pounds of grey matter inside his skull that his body evolved to protect inside that head. And everything that Jamie sees, hears, and works with is those electrical and chemical interpretations that his brain makes and makes sense of this world. Well, you're making sense of an image-based world, and you're just referentially looping that back into the world. Just think of social media, you know, how did you tweet today? Did you TikTok today? Did you, did you distill your life, which was a whole 24 hours into literally like two images or two pieces of little tape? You know, we do that with the self. And this is how they kind of buy all the, ah, Yeah, absolutely. And it's all, and, and again, people are then looping it back. So now with this, when I talk about the hyper real, I always talk about you've got five selves now. There's the biological Jamie, the mediated Jamie, if you want to call it that. So it's the kind of you, it's in the kind of, that you put up on Facebook or TikTok or whatever. There's then the network Jamie, which is the one that all your pals and all that feed in. Hey, Jamie, yeah, we're at a pub, great time, blah, blah, blah. Right? And they then filter into it. So they then construct another you. That's your third you. Then you've got your fourth you. You've got the algorithmic Jamie, which is the ghost and the machine, which is saying, hey, I know this guy. I'm profiling him all the time, and I'm going to send him things, and he's going to like them, and then look them back into the consumer society. And now you've got the synthetic Jamie, right, which is the metaverse Jamie, who can be a clone upon a clone upon a clone. And you've got the five. And this is all part of hyper-real, and I think the metaverse represents the ultimate mode for me of hyper-reality. Really, to be long, long-winded piece there, but just think of consumer society, okay? And I used to say this, at the school, what do you, I don't know what you mean, man, I don't know what you mean. I says, right, okay, let's imagine that we take Jamie to a real place, a so-called the material world out there, a mountain, an authentic so-called real place. Take it to the Everest. We'll put it in the top of Everest, totally alone, right, okay? Now imagine you're totally naked. There's no, no brands, nothing on you, nothing. You're just totally you, top of the highest mountain in the world, totally alone, right? I get it. Now you look up and you see a cloud and this cloud looks like a little swish and suddenly, bang, Nike pops into the head, <clears throat> logo, just do it. It's a brand that's been burned into your brain. And the classic thing is, as I now say to you, how do you know that's hyper real again, working the sign society, the sign and the, sign, the, the, the signifier, the loop and the signified Nike pops into your head. And how do you know us? This is the, a whispering dream, as I say. It's a whispering dream burned into the, the deepest recesses of your brain. And people go, right, I kind of get that now, how powerful the sign is. It makes me think of Nike. It makes you do something. It makes you think of the brand. And then I say, how do we know how powerful it is? Unthink it. Unthink Nike. It can't be done. We can't do it. Hyperreality, boom. Your mind is awash with those signifiers and signified. And how do you get out of it? You can't. <laughs> So uh, on that fifth one, I mean, I guess you can now see it, everyone can now see it with the success of open AI and generative AI, where everything's an input, even the outputs, you know, they're just kind of perpetual rehashing, re-simulating a simulation. And you can already see in a way, it starts to become, even the style becomes quite homogenous. It, it, it looks, it starts to look the same. Everything, rather than seeing 
infinite variety, which is what I would have hoped is the, the possibility of being able to you know, do infinite simulation, for some reason it tends towards something. And then I guess you take that one step further when you start to do that with the self, deep fakes, and of course people are now saying, well, can we take the algorithmic Jamie, I, don't know, I think that's your fourth one, and recreate that Jamie in, in the fifth dimension or however you framed it to represent me, represent me in different contexts, to give me immortality. So, I mean, I, I guess as a futurist, are you even allowed to put labels on it like dystopic or utopic or... Yeah, 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 yeah. Do you think it's going to tend in a particular direction or, or, or do you have to remain neutral and say, well, it, it just is what it is. It's happening, whether we think it's good or bad. And For a post-structure sense and the kind of future post-structures, and we, we look at what we would say how a context or cultural context has shaped us, our values, our beliefs, our behaviours, and, of course, then we look at the role of language and, and therefore power, right? And that, of course, takes you into this whole dystopian and utopian, which is one of the fifth principles for a lot of futurists, you know, dystopian utopia. And that's where we kind of end up. Really, because we live in this vortex, if you like, of simulation, we're now taking as this vortex is getting so fast and so swept in. It's leading us to a synthetic society, as I would call it, a synthetic society and a synthetic a self or a multiple self if we want it. Now, the, the, the great thing of that is you're absolutely right. The metaverse allows us to escape and to engage in experiences or go places and experience things that we could never do, even to bring things back, as I say, from the past and recreate them. I used to use the example of like Live Aid, go, the ability to go back and live and, and feel as if I'm actually present at that event. You know, wow, that's, that's fantastic. I remember doing this, you know, with somebody who's got more neuron disease to relive experiences of their past, you know, who can't get out of a wheelchair, can't walk, can't talk, but now they can do things, you know. An old man who could climb a mountaintop you know, it used to do when he was 18, right? So there's so amazing things in there, you know, that we can actually do. Someday, you know, even as we say, people who are doing naughty things to understand the implications of their actions, you know, about racism or sexism or anything like that, you know? So there's so many things that we could do. But of course, everybody then kind of references probably the old Matrix mentality, the old film in the Matrix, you know, which in a sense is really, there's so many things in there that's really good for where we're, for that, like uh, when he talks to Neo, the see the famous scene, and he's saying to Theo, "We are the Matrix," and I would replace the Matrix for society, the spectacle, or the hyper real, because he asked Neo in the film, he asked, "Well, what is the Matrix?" And Morpheus is in his great comment, he says, "The Matrix is all around you. It's in this very room. When you look out the window, when you pay your taxes, when you go to church, something's been made. You know, to, to a slave for your mind." As he says, "You're a slave." And he says, you can't feel it, touch it, but it's everywhere, right? And that's exactly what we mean when we talk about the hyper-real, and that's exactly what we mean about society spectacle. The, the board says this phrase, the society spectacle, which is very similar. It says it's the consumer society has duped you, stupefied you, made you dumb. It's the lie that has been made real. You think this is real, this isn't real. And the matrix, just like folk would say, with the metaverse kind of idea, oh, I've got ultimate freedom, or you think you do. But he says, no, he says, he says that, that you're a slave. He says that it's a prison for your mind. And that's what, that's the dystopian. It's no different for your dad shouting to you up the stairs. I would say sometimes, I turn that mute, that's not music, or that's, there's, that's not fashion. Or kids, get off the telly, or now get off the iPad. And now it's going to be, get out the headset. You know, it's the same media hype, the same media panic, you know, it's the end of the world. So it depends where you sit, whether this is dystopian or utopian, you know. That kind of idea. And it's quite common, actually, for people that work, work in tech. I desperately try to avoid screens. So I read a 
physical newspaper. I read physical books, don't even listen to audio books because I'm just constantly using tech all the time. But I mean, I'm 42. I'm probably the, the last generation that will have the capacity to do that, right? Because you look at my daughter, she's 10. I've got her on the VR now. I don't let her on it very often because I know it's not good for her eye development. Um, so she gets like 30 minutes every month. I look at how she consumes media and yeah, it's terrifying, but probably in the same way that I would get shouted out for being on the computer for too long playing Civilization or whatever. Uh, it, it didn't harm me too much, I don't think. But I look at her using VR and there's, there's some hope in me because I think if you look at the the kind of mental revolution that happened when people started to drop out and take acid in the 60s and 70s, questioning reality, they were somehow able to pull themselves out. I kind of see VR as, uh, and well, actually XR as digital acid, right? You can take it on, put it off. You know, she's already starting to come to me unprompted and say, well, could we just be in a dream? You know, so she's already has, it's actually increasing her capacity to differentiate realities. So maybe that kind of feeds us into simulation theory. Go on, let, let's do it. We've got a bit bit more time. Where do, you, where do you sit on that? Oh, the thing is, is it used to call it, the, well, the loads of, it's a classic philosophical conundrum. You know, Plato discusses it in the Plato's Republic and the Allegory of the Cave when he talks about a man who's chained and he sees shadows on a wall and somehow he breaks free just very quickly, escapes the cave and he realises he enters into what he believes is the real world. And then he comes back and tells them, and, they, and you try, of course what you do is you try to come back and tell people and they say he's a madman, of course, because they don't listen to him. Um, then you can go to like Sir Friedrich Nietzsche. Nietzsche is the, probably the first postmodern philosopher. And this is what always bugs me about the metaverse. Is these ideas have been about for, for a long time, guys. So Nietzsche talks about how we tend to be living in an Apollonian world. That our world has always been. He, he chooses the god Apollo. He says it's all shiny and the world's all nice and it, everything has a place and has place and this is the real world. Like post-structuralists, we have an incredulity. We are very suspicious of metaverses. Okay, these stories that make perfect make the world make sense and say that this is the truth of the matter. So what Nietzsche says, he says, he says, so I drag you to the void, as he says. He says, and he shows the people that your world isn't real. It's the void. And the people go, they shriek in horror, as he says. So you're saying to your daughter, and everybody, we're going to take all your brands, all your stuff, all your consumers, all the signs, all the images, all the things that have contaminated you, as, as Debord would say, and as duped and stupefied you, made you dumb and pacify, take all your creativity away. This stuff takes your creativity away. Where are you? You're nowhere. You're just a consumer, a battery, as it says in the Matrix. If we take all of that away, you're left with the void. And of course, when you do that, I did this yesterday with students, and of course, everybody goes, well, what's left? And Nietzsche says, well, I dance upon the void. What he means is, I don't know, but I go and try and create something different, Right? And like you, it's my hope for the metaverse, that the metaverse is almost like a void, just like cyberspace, it's blank, it's empty, and then people are making things. And like you're saying your daughter are coming, and the kids are coming. It's this open metaverse again, they're coming. Oh, it's the openness is the idea, as I was saying to you, the idea to, to think differently, to see differently, and therefore to do differently. I think that is the most fabulous thing, and it's the most fabulous thing, again, with a lot of transhuman conversations, how we can evolve as human beings. 
and hopefully break away from all the madness that you've been seeing. Frankly, what our governments are doing, because I've been arguing for a long time, our governments can't govern. They've gave up governing. They've gave up trying to change the world. All they do is perpetuate the same nonsense that they do, keep themselves in positions of power. And things like the metaverse and the technologies that we're seeing in the hands of children may change the world, guys, you know, because it's going to release the most powerful thing. And it's this Im- imagination that's in the head. And it's in the head of kids. You know, kids have got it. And that's the thing. So I don't know if that helped. <laughs> well, I think it's a great way to end the show on an optimistic note and definitely one I subscribe to. But then I'm an optimist. So I- I'm kind of always hoping for, for a positive outcome. Matt, been fascinating having you on. Thanks so much, both for kind of commenting in the original LinkedIn post. We'd definitely like to kind of chat more with you about this stuff as it evolves, but thanks for coming on. Great, Jamie. Anytime, just give me a shout. Love to talk about this stuff, okay? If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 